we're going to get four questions closer to answering every question there ever was today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Very serious. And welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Friday, October the 10th of 2008, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. And yes, you heard right, we are doing this on Friday now. I'm not sure uh, when Justin is going to be able to return to uh, to resume his studies in John, but until he does, uh, it seemed to make the most sense to me. That we, uh, that we would be doing these on Fridays instead of on Saturdays. Because when I post them on Saturdays, it's usually Saturday evening or so. And so then you only have really Sunday to listen to it before you get the Monday podcast. So I'm just trying to be logical and make some sense out of everything, uh, as always. But anyway, I hope you guys have had a fantastic week, and I hope you guys are looking forward to the weekend. I am looking forward to going out to Arkansas next Saturday. But uh, anyway, you know, like I said at the end of last podcast, in case you missed it, and I hope you guys did listen to the Wednesday podcast, this Knowing God uh, study is going to be awesome. But uh, yeah, we're not going to miss a beat when uh, when I'm moving to Arkansas. Next Saturday, I'm going out there to drop my car off, and I'll be flying back, and we're going to drive out there with the moving truck. But what I'm doing right now is I'm actually recording these podcasts uh, way ahead of time and scheduling them to post. So uh, So we're not going to miss a beat at all. We are going to keep everything as much on schedule as we possibly can. So anyway, you guys can be praying for me because right now, uh, as you're listening to this, I'm not in Arkansas yet. But when we get into you know the lessons in the coming weeks, uh, they're actually not going to be recorded anytime within um, you know a few days of when you listen to it. So uh, they'll be recorded way before. So anyway. Thank you guys for joining us today. God bless you. We're so happy to have you here with us today. And of course, once again, as always, uh, for our Q&A lessons, welcome Christina. She'll be uh, reading our questions for us here today. So just one quick announcement, and that is that we still do have a ton of those clear window stickers. A lot of you guys have written to me, and I have sent you your uh, your clear window stickers for BibleStudyPodcast.org. But uh, if that's something that you want, my email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And of course, uh, keep sending your questions in to me as well, because what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, I'm going to try to get one of these Q&A lessons in every week, uh, at least until Justin returns. So... Anyway, let's go ahead and get started. Christina, what do we have for our first question today? Okay, our first question today comes from William. William wants to know, what does the Bible say about the role of baptism in the walk of a Christian? Well, first of all, as always, thank you, William, for sending the question in. Uh, You know, we've certainly covered the fact that we're not saved by baptism several times throughout our studies here on Bible Study Podcasts, both in Romans and on our Wednesday uh, apologetics lessons, uh, you know, from the from the get-go, basically. So, you know, we've clearly uh, determined that baptism doesn't play a role in one's justification. So to ask what the purpose or the role of baptism is, is a good question to address, and it's something that we haven't really uh, touched all that much on just yet. We're about six verses away from touching on it, but uh, we'll just give you guys a, a little preview here. So, uh, So anyway, William, thank you for bringing that up. First of all, let's talk about the basis 
for baptism. Where do we get the basis for baptism? Well, in the Great Commission, which is, of course, given by Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we read, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, within this one passage, uh, Jesus gives the program of the church. Go, first step, make disciples. Next, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So, uh, you know, within this one passage, Jesus tells the disciples to you know, teach converts and believers to observe all that he commanded them. Let's not overlook the fact that Jesus just commanded them to baptize converts in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So obviously this is something that Jesus intended for us to observe, something that Jesus specifically mentioned for us to observe. Now, as we read through the the New Testament, particularly Acts, which records uh, you know all the events which transpired after this command was given, we see that converts are being encouraged to be baptized and are in fact being baptized. Why? Well, obviously because Jesus had commanded the disciples to do that to baptize converts. So first and foremost, here we find uh, one purpose of baptism. It's a matter of obedience to Jesus. Uh, There's also a great deal of symbolism in baptism as well. And uh, while this isn't really the purpose, it's, you know, it's significant uh, for us to at least consider. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, which is the verse that's uh, about six verses away from where we are in our Roman study that we'll be getting to in, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple years. I'm just kidding. But uh, he says that, quote, We have been buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Now, this is a verse that, like I said, you know, we'll unpack when we get to it in our Roman study, but clearly this is uh, this is indicating that there's some symbolism there. Baptism represents salvation. It's an outward expression of, of an inward experience. We find a great deal of symbolism actually throughout the whole New Testament when we're talking about baptism. Just remember that symbolism, something that's symbolic, actually refers to a literal reality. For example, in Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 and 27, Paul indicates that baptism symbolizes being covered by Christ. Uh, In Acts chapter 22 verse 16, we find that it symbolizes the washing away of our sins. And again, remember, these are symbolic acts which point to a literal reality. And, uh, you know, I think we should also consider baptism, uh, to an extent maybe, to be a public confession of sorts, at least sometimes. It's not a rite of passage into a secret society or anything like that, but this is, uh, this can be a believer's opportunity to publicly confess their faith in Christ through their actions. However, we should note that nowhere in Scripture do we find any indication that it is a necessary aspect of baptism, that it's a public confession. Uh, Nowhere does uh, Scripture indicate that it's a public confession. Uh, After all, the Ethiopian eunuch who was baptized by Philip had no audience at all. It was actually a very private event here. Uh, So there's no necessary need to be baptized publicly. In fact, as we read through Scripture, read through through the New Testament, we find that baptism consistently occurs immediately after one receives and believes the gospel. So 
to make a long answer short, I believe that baptism is the first step in being obedient to Christ as one of his disciples, and it's a necessary step in the process of sanctification. So uh, hopefully that answers your question, William, if you need more clarification or you know maybe a, a, a more drawn-out answer. Uh, be sure to check out the Romans chapter 6, verse 4 lesson when we get to that, or you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com, and I'll, uh, I'll do what I can to help you out with that. But thanks for sending that question in, William. God bless you. Okay, Christina, what do we have for our next question? Okay, our next question today comes from Monica. Monica asks... If a person is seeking God wholeheartedly, they live their life trying to please God, but are involved and influenced by a church that is a bit off in its teachings, but truly believe what their church teaches and does is right, are those people going to heaven? I am referring to denominational churches such as Pentecostals and Christian cults, whose hearts are for Christ yet are somewhat off. I have been briefly a part of both types of churches, but was fortunate enough God gave me the discernment early on to know that was not right. My heart is saddened for them, and I'm curious to know what you have to say. Well, as always, thank you, Monica, for sending that question in. Uh, I do appreciate you sending it in. There are certainly a lot of people out there whose intentions appear to be good, but whose beliefs are, uh, are false, or their, their beliefs are bad. There's no question about that. In response, I would say that no person can escape the fact that they are accountable. They are responsible for what they believe in. They have a responsibility to really question what it is that they believe. For people who belong to cults, usually have a a false understanding of salvation, you know, almost without exception. But they never seem to question the principles which underlie the doctrines that they have accepted. Now, I find it, you know, just very hard to believe, for example, that Mormons can believe what they believe. I mean, they either don't question the things that they've been taught, in which case I believe they are rightly condemned, or they intentionally and deliberately jump through doctrinal and interpretive hoops in order to believe and thus accept Mormon doctrine, in which case I also believe they are uh, rightly condemned. Uh, You know, nobody deserves salvation. It's a gift which is received by putting your faith in Jesus. And we're talking about the Jesus that we find in Scripture, not the Jesus that Mormons believe in. The Jesus that Mormons believe in is somebody that is totally different from the Jesus that we believe in. So, uh, you know, there are some very basic uh, philosophical principles which by themselves, I believe, are sufficient for demonstrating the false teaching on uh, on Jesus or the nature of God. In other words, if a Mormon, for example, accepts the Mormon teaching that God was once a man who had a father, who had a father, who had a father, who had a father, ad infinitum, you know, then there is no first cause. And this is called the fallacy of infinite regress. And it is self-evident. Uh, you know, if somebody just examines this teaching, they'll ask themselves, well, if God was once a man who had a father, who had a father ad infinitum, you know, then there was no first cause. But there must be a first cause because it's impossible to have an infinite sequence. It's logically impossible. So using this very simple uh, philosophical principle would be sufficient to demonstrate that Mormonism is false. And this is just an example, just one example of, you know, many that we could talk about here, uh, just from the Mormon church. I believe that the same holds true in every cult. If somebody will only take the time to think about exactly what they're claiming to believe, they would realize that something just doesn't add up. So are they really well-intentioned? I mean, are their intentions really good? I would say no. 
They're not. Uh, God didn't give us a brain so that we could check it at the door. He gave it to us so that we could think. For the person who, you know, checks their, their brain at the door, whether they appear to be well-intentioned or not, they're either intentionally or willfully ignorant, or they've just deceived themselves. You know, we also have to remember that if a person is saved, uh, you know, if they're part of a cult, but they are saved, they have the Holy Spirit, which leads us to all truth. So for the person who accepts a lie, either they're ignoring the Holy Spirit, or they've not been led to truth by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't in them. And I honestly don't believe that it's possible for a believer to go through life ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've gone through our study on the essentials, we saw just which doctrines were necessary for salvation, uh, implicitly and explicitly. And I honestly believe that anyone who believes those things will be saved, even if they have some crazy thoughts or beliefs, which, uh, you know, fall outside of those essential doctrines. Pentecostals, for example, um, they, they typically affirm all of the essentials. So I wouldn't necessarily classify uh, them as a cult at all. They might be a little bit more experience-oriented than I care to be, but that's an aspect of our faith that I believe we should have grace in. And uh, actually, in one of the questions to come, uh, we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit more. But basically, I would say that it's impossible for a person to read Romans chapter 3 and to believe that anyone naturally has good intentions. Uh, that doesn't line up with what Scripture teaches. The, the Bible tells us that nobody is really uh, well-intentioned when it comes to seeking God. Nobody. Nobody seeks God. That's what we read back in Romans chapter 3. So biblically, the appearance of good intentions would be uh, just that. It's an appearance. Everybody has a personal responsibility to question what they believe in and why they believe in it. If a person does not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter how good their intentions are, they will have to pay the penalty of their sins themselves. Scripture teaches us that for the person who seeks the truth, it will be revealed to them. But if good intentions got everybody into heaven, then, uh, you know, we couldn't say that it's a narrow road. It, we couldn't say that there's a narrow path to following Jesus. So, uh, anyway, thank you for the question, Monica. I hope that answers it for you. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be harsh. You know, I don't like the idea of people uh, going to hell or anything. But, uh, you know, I'm at the same time, I'm trying to come up with a scriptural answer for you. And uh, I do believe that that's what scripture teaches us, that good intentions aren't enough, and we don't even really have good intentions. So anyway, God bless you, Monica. Thank you for that question, and I hope that answers it for you. Christina, what do we have for our next question? Okay, our next question comes from Matthew. Matthew writes, I was wondering what your opinion of the Vineyard Church is. I have been attending one for about a year now, and it seems like the one I attend is biblically based. There are a few things that I am uncomfortable with, though, like how often people have signs of the Holy Spirit. I have kept an eye out for things that I think may be unbiblical and would like any input you could offer and even some scripture passages to counter some of the false beliefs if there are any. Well, thank you for the question, uh, Matthew. I appreciate you sending that in. To be honest, I, I kind of have mixed feelings when it comes to Vineyard. On the one hand, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of the teachings that come from the Vineyard Movement are, uh, they border on being a cult, uh, they are doctrinally aberrant uh, at, at best, but on the other hand, I think that some of the greatest worship music 
in, in contemporary Christian music comes from the vineyard movement. You know, sadly, I'm, you know, I'm forced, just like everybody else should be, but, uh, you know, I'm forced to be very careful when I listen to vineyard music, because if it reflects vineyard theology, uh, you know, I just personally don't want the false teachings of the vineyard movement going through my mind. Um, you know, some of the more popular vineyard artists out there uh, would be Jeremy Riddle, uh, Sherry Carr. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe Jeremy Camp has a vineyard background. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that he that he does. I've read that somewhere. So one thing that I do when I you know want to buy music by a vineyard artist is to diligently read through the lyrics, looking for even the slightest hint of a false teaching. But anyway, let's talk about some of the problems uh, that I have with the Vineyard movement and why I believe they teach false doctrine. Uh, and let's start with John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard movement out of the Calvary Chapel movement. And, you know, as I've mentioned uh, to you guys, I think once before, I, I do have a background in the Calvary Chapel movement, although I've walked away from it mainly because I disagree with their model of um, of church leadership. But Anyway, early in his career, John Wimber started believing that the best way to see a church grow was to have signs and wonders in the church today. Uh, And from the outset, the emphasis of the Vineyard Movement was attaining spiritual power. It wasn't growing deeper in their faith. It wasn't, uh, you know, getting a better understanding of Scripture. It was attaining spiritual power. And this is still the emphasis of the Vineyard Movement by and large. But, uh, you know, when it was still a Calvary Chapel church, when they were still under Calvary Chapel, various other Calvary Chapel pastors started hearing all these rumors about occultic practices going on under John Wimber's leadership. Uh, You know, when rumor had it that there were levitations, that, uh, you know, there was repetitive chanting and some other very strange things. And uh, in his defense, to to defend himself, um, you know, when these other pastors called him out on it, John Wimber claimed that, quote, God is above his word, end quote, and that, quote, God is not limited by his word, end quote. So in other words, if what was going on in the Vineyard Church was something that God was doing, then it didn't matter if what they were doing lined up with Scripture or not. Uh, And, man, that is just a scary thought. And that's where they kind of almost become a cult because they really downplay the importance of Scripture. And uh, that becomes obvious in some of their doctrines, which we're going to get to here in just a second. But the result of all that is that the Vineyard Movement errs in at least three ways. First of all, their emphasis is on experience, rather than on teaching sound doctrine, rather than on learning the Bible. The emphasis is on experience. Now, I realize that there are churches which are completely boring and completely drab, in which, you know, if you're able to stay awake through the whole service, you'll learn some very good, solid doctrine. And trust me, I've I've been to churches like that. I've visited churches like that. And then on the other extreme, you have churches like the Vineyard, which don't really teach uh, sound doctrine at all, by and large, because if they did, uh, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, there needs to be a balance in there, where um, you know the service provides an experience which draws the believer closer to the Lord, but which also teaches sound doctrine. Uh, experience is just extremely subjective. Uh, it doesn't determine what truth is, but doctrine is objective. Uh, you know, both elements, um, you know, experience and doctrine, uh, need to be present. Both both elements need to be present. But unfortunately, the Vineyard movement leans too heavily on the subjectivity of experience. The second problem uh, that 
I have with the Vineyard uh, movement is that they do indeed incorporate occultic practices into their services, their theology, and uh, and so on and so forth. They do things like trying to read a person's aura. They do uh, astral projection in uh, in some Vineyard churches and and things of that nature. And those are all you know very closely linked to the occult. These are demonic occultic activities which believers need to just completely stay away from um you know whether it's a good experience you know whether they feel like it's a good experience or not uh, i i would definitely steer clear of a church that was doing that kind of stuff uh the third problem is uh is the pursuit of these signs and wonders and trying to attain this spiritual power um they believe that signs and wonders are attainable by believers today and that they are the core element of the church today, that, that having these signs and wonders and having this spiritual power is the core element of the church today. And I'm not talking about just speaking in tongues either. Um, one of the early leaders of the Vineyard Movement was a man named Peter Wagner, and according to Peter Wagner, he says, quote, Jesus exercised no power of and by himself. We today can expect to do the same or greater things than Jesus did, because we've been given access to the same power source, end quote. What? We can expect to do the same or greater things than Jesus did? Uh, man, if I, if I didn't, uh, you know, if I didn't read that, I would never believe that anybody really believes that. Um, how could they possibly believe that? But, you know, it's because the Vineyard Movement teaches that Jesus forfeited his divine attributes, all of them, uh, at the Incarnation. They teach that the miracles that Jesus performed weren't actually performed by him. Rather, they were performed by the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. So, according to the false teachings that you find in the Vineyard Movement, because Jesus had the Holy Spirit, and because we have the Holy Spirit, we're able to do the same things that Jesus did. Obviously, the Vineyard Movement, by and large, has a false understanding of uh, of Jesus's nature uh, when he was, uh, you know, the incarnate God. Now, needless to say, I, I don't really support the the Vineyard Movement at all. Uh, in fact, they aren't too far from being classified as a cult as a result of their uh, theology and practice. So, um, you know, I, I would definitely encourage people not to get involved in the Vineyard Movement. There are plenty of good churches out there which offer a really good balance between experience and doctrine. Uh, and if you need help finding a church like that, um, you know, get in touch with me. I'll be happy to try and help you out and, um, you know, find some resources for, for looking into that. But Matthew, thank you for the question. That's a really good question. And I hope that answers it for you. Uh, if you need any clarification, you can uh, write me on Facebook, which is where you sent this question, or you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. But God bless you, Matthew. Thank you for sending that in. And we have time for one more quick question. Let's make this a short one. Uh, Christina, what can we do for our last question? Okay, our last question comes from Richard, and Richard writes, My question is, with the elections right around the corner, how do you think Jesus would vote? I'm not asking for which candidates he would vote for, but what ideas, concepts, or topics he would be in favor of. Well, that is an excellent question, Richard. Uh, I, I think this is a question that we can all benefit from and we should all be thinking about uh, at this point in our nation's history. But now, because we're a nonprofit religious organization here at BibleStudyPodcast.org. Uh, you know, we're a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries. Uh, I can only say so much when it comes to politics. I can't really say a whole lot, but what I can talk about is what issues I think Jesus would find important. 
uh, and Richard, I know I, I answered this question for you through email, but I hope you don't mind me uh, sharing my response with everybody else as well. So um, first of all, obviously, I don't have absolute knowledge as to how or even if Jesus would uh, would vote. But let me start off by talking about issues which I don't think Jesus would have found uh, to be crucial or you know overly important. I think it's safe to say that uh, that war and economy, uh, for example, are two things that would not be primary issues for Jesus, since A, only he can bring peace, and the Bible teaches that the end times will be marked by wars and, and rumors of wars, and B, more importantly, Jesus is a lot more concerned with the state of our hearts than he is with the state of our checking accounts, our savings accounts, or our retirement accounts. Uh, Jesus would certainly know that mammon, uh, which is the god of money, is a false god who offers no grace and no forgiveness. Man, is that a good reminder for this day and age or what? Uh, I would say it definitely is, but uh, what would matter to Jesus? And, you know, that that's not really a, a terribly easy question to answer, but because the Bible teaches the value of human life, for one thing, I believe that Jesus would look for a candidate who affirmed the sanctity of life. Uh, I, I just can't see how Jesus would support anyone who is in favor of murdering human beings on any level. Um, and compassion is another issue I think Jesus would consider. Does the candidate have plans to help or to feed the poor? Um, you know, I, I really can't, you know, go into much more detail than that. Uh, I, you know, obviously can't give a definitive answer. Uh, it's not possible really, but, uh, but I hope this helps to some extent nonetheless and gives us a little bit of food for thought, hopefully. But uh, thank you for the question, Richard, and God bless you. And uh, we are way over our time limit for today. I realize I just wanted to get that one in real quick at the end there. But God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have any questions, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And, uh, you know, maybe I can use it in one of the upcoming Q&A lessons. Or, um, you know, if it's an easy enough question, uh, maybe I can answer it through email. But anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Thank you.